This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 354th episode, we have a bunch of news, including an update on Spinosaurus swimming that you're going to share with me. I know nothing else about it. Well, that's the gist. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a bunch of other news, as well as Dinosaur of the Day, Pisanosaurus, and a fun fact, which is about scavenging. Oh, back to scavenging. Yeah, I... Wanted to go down some rabbit holes last week, but you already had taken over the fun fact because of the (laughs) tortoises eating birds thing. Mm -hmm. So I saved it for this week. But before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we've got three new patrons to thank. They are LV, Dennis Saltasaurus, who's a musician that goes by Dennis Salta, and Scott. And then rounding out the shout outs, we've got Gordon Adon and Jackie Cephalosaurus. Jeremy Stevens, Arya and Tristanosaurus, Ben at Jurassic Site B, Vincentrosaurus, Sophie, and Anne. Awesome. Thank you, everybody who's a patron, and thank you to our newest patrons, too. We really appreciate having you here, and hopefully you enjoy all the rewards, like that Discord server we've got. It's been pretty active, talking about lots of dinosaur things. And speaking of our Discord server, which you can access through patreon.com slash inodino. <laughs> nice plug. Thanks to Paul for sharing with us a update on the scavenging Allosaurus. Ooh, yeah. There's a really good Twitter thread by Brian Eng, which I think came out pretty much immediately after we recorded last week's episode, <laughs> where he was going through some of the claims in the paper and why he liked them or didn't like them. It looked like somebody tagged him because the paper used his art and he didn't realize it. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because he pointed out that the paper that basically commissioned that art was about the bite force of Allosaurus mm-hmm. and basically that it was as strong as some modern predators. Oh, okay. So that's different from the paper, which was talking about Allosaurus having weak jaws. Yeah. So they were using that art in this paper about weak jaws and scavenging. And he's like, it's kind of ironic because the original impetus for that art was a relatively strong jaw compared to what they're saying in this paper. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of funny. But last week, I was mostly focused on the practicality of being a pure scavenger, like, you know, the amount of carrying this around and walking to all those carcasses and how long the meat would last and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. which I'll get a little bit more into in the fun fact. But Brian elaborated on two of the anatomical claims, which I think he is very qualified to talk about because as a paleo artist and someone who does like reconstructions of dinosaurs all the time. Oh yeah, you got to know your stuff. You do. And you have to be very intricately aware of 
probably, you know, like where their eyes would have been while they were alive. Whereas most paleontologists are looking at the bones and not necessarily super concerned with exact position of eyes and things like that. If you're doing paleo art, that stuff is really important. Yeah, the eye placement. Yes. Yeah. So one of the claims is that Allosaurus had weak jaws. And I sort of, we already talked a little bit about that. But basically the short answer is its jaws were a lot weaker than most predators, but still strong enough to hunt. So Erickson, in a paper well over 10 years ago, estimated their bite force was on par with a wolf or a leopard. Oh, okay. Which, you know, they're not even close to the strongest bite force of any animal. But they can still do damage. Yeah, they're still predators. You know, they're still carnivores. They don't, wolves and leopards, they hunt and mm-hmm. they eat meat that they kill. They don't scavenge. So the idea that having a jaw around the same strength as a wolf or a leopard isn't strong enough to hunt I think is kind of silly. And as a reminder, Allosaurus seemed to have an obscenely large gape angle for its mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they proposed that it had sort of a hatchet chomping method and relied more on its neck muscles in order to sort of slam the top jaw down onto prey rather than biting with the bottom jaw. So the bite force didn't matter as much because it was using its neck muscles. Yeah, that's been proposed in the past. So even without doing that, though, it has the bite force around a wolf. But if you really need to add a bunch of extra force to it, those neck muscles could potentially allow you to bite a lot harder. Should I do that next time I'm having trouble chewing something? Just use my neck muscles to bite down harder? (laughs) You should not. But back to this serious analysis going on. Okay. There are also several relatively large bones that have been bitten cleanly through by Allosaurus. Mm-hmm. So their bite force was strong enough to bite through bone. Like we know, we know dogs can do that. Thanks to a listener sharing that with us mm-hmm. another time. And, you know, similar in bite force to a wolf, maybe stronger if they're using the neck muscles, definitely strong enough to do some hunting. So the idea that they had weak jaws and that's because they're a scavenger probably doesn't have a lot of merit. The second claim that Brian went after was the binocular vision claim. And Tom Holtz also had a post about this a few days before our episode came out. And the claim is basically that the binocular vision in Allosaurus was too limited for it to be a predator. In other words, it was basically just looking out the sides of its head and not looking forward like you'd expect for a predator. But Tom Holtz pointed out that most non-tyrannosaurid dinosaurs didn't have much for binocular vision, including the carnivores. And presumably... There were predatory dinosaurs in the Jurassic when Tyrannosaurids hadn't evolved yet. Right. Somebody's got to go after those herbivores. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, just in general, most dinosaurs had pretty narrow heads, so they probably didn't have great binocular vision unless their eyes sort of stuck out from their head. That was another thing Brian was talking about. It was like maybe their eyes sort of bulged out a little bit. And bulged then they out get... and Googled. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> But there are a bunch of examples of modern predators with crappy binocular vision. There's Komodo dragons, crocodiles, snakes, sharks, and whales all have very poor binocular vision. And a lot of those are very good predators. Especially the whales. Yeah, there's a, that's our reminder that all whales are carnivores. People forget that, but they are. They look friendly because they're big and they don't eat people. Mm-hmm. But they eat plenty of other animals. <laughs> As a side note, there was another Twitter thread where a scientist had dissected a whale and stripped off the fin part. So you see the basically it looks like a giant hand underneath. Yeah. Yeah, they're super weird. Yeah. I also think great white sharks might be a good analogy for Allosaurus. 
because they also sort of open their jaws from like the top and bottom at the same time. And presumably they might have had a similar hunting strategy to Allosaurus in the sort of biting and then running away rather than, you know, sort of clamping down and like a dog does and sort of like dragging down prey. Because we were talking about how relative to their size, their bite force isn't great, but they do have big sharp teeth. So they could cause some damage and then sort of like scamper off and just wait for the animal to bleed out. And just like great white sharks, they have a really good sense of smell. Interestingly, their sense of smell, Allosaurus sense of smell, is a pretty similar ratio. The olfactory ratio is pretty similar to Carcharodontosaurus, which is named after its similarities with the great white shark. Coming full circle here. It is. Although Tyrannosaurids, including Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Tarbosaurus, and T-Rex, all have a way bigger olfactory ratio than Allosaurus. So again, T-Rex is the king. It's got the best binocular vision. It's got some of the best smelling. It's also got like the biggest head and the best bite force, all that stuff. I'm not surprised. No. Aptly named. <laughs> yeah. Which is fortuitous because when they named T-Rex, there were still so many other dinosaurs yet to be discovered. <laughs> That's true. But it still holds up. It does. And it, it reminds me of people that are like, the more I study T-Rex, the more I like it. Mm -hmm. Or people that are like, I didn't want to like T-Rex, but then I learn about it. And it's like, oh, it is actually a pretty impressive animal. Mm -hmm. But Allosaurus could still have been a predator even without these things. It doesn't mean that it, that paper is wrong and that it wasn't a scavenger or that it wasn't scavenging more than other dinosaurs would have. But I think their assumptions that they made that it's weak bite force and it's binocular lack of binocular vision are the reasons for it are... Right. Spurious. They did mention th there could be future models with additional data added. Yeah. Oh, the model thing. I didn't even get into that. But there were some comments about how it's based on mammals. And mm -hmm. we really don't. I talked about that in the last episode. How Right. It's not the same as wolf and sheep. Yeah. We didn't know how many allosaurus there were versus how many sauropods. In a lot of these ecosystems, there's way more predators than there are prey, like that Stromer's riddle thing. So... The amount of carry-on and all that is very, very hard to determine. Yeah, but I still think it's a fun experiment. Yeah, me too. It's fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. And also just thinking about like, oh yeah, there were sauropod carcasses probably all over. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. Somebody mentioned how they might have been similar to whale falls in the ocean, mm. where like when a whale dies and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, it becomes like a whole mini ecosystem for years. <laughs> oh, man. The same thing could have happened with sauropods. It's really interesting to think about how different animals would be involved and at what times. Mm -hmm. Because just like with a whale fall, it's like when the whale first hits the bottom of the ocean, you get the bigger animals come and eat like big chunks of meat. But then over time, it becomes like smaller and smaller stuff, mm -hmm. picking up the scraps. And then eventually there's something there. They're just like trying to get the last bit off bones. Mm -hmm. Or using the bones themselves. Yeah, like burrowing into them. Next, the Spinosaurus swimming debate continues. Tell me about it. So there's a paper that came out called Contributions to a Discussion of Spinosaurus aegypticus as a Capable Swimmer and Deep Water Predator, published in Life by Jan Gimza and Ulrich Gimza. Life magazine? Not, <laughs> that was my thought too. No, this is a journal. Okay. Didn't know there was a journal named Life. Me either. I had to check twice. But it, yeah, it is called Life. So they're basically supporting the idea of Spinosaurus being a swimmer. And they said that they believe to have 
coherent conclusions about semi-aquatic animals like Spinosaurus, you have to base it on allometric principles considering their Reynolds numbers. A Reynolds number of an animal? Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why not? A Reynolds number is sort of a property of a fluid, not of an animal. Right. So you're combining the characteristics of the animal with their size, the allometric principles, with how fluid is moving around them, I think is what they mean. Okay. They could just talk about the like coefficient of friction and things like that of the animal. Yeah. Seems simpler. It's because they end up describing the crest of Spinosaurus and how that affects how streamlined it would be. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty similar to the other paper where they talked about how the depth of the water, it needed to be like extra deep so that the sail wasn't causing extra friction on the surface of the water, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in this paper, they had three topics. And the first one was they discussed the buoyancy and balance aspects of Spinosaurus. So they mentioned Ibrahim et al.'s 10-meter model of a subadult Spinosaurus. And they were looking at if Spinosaurus did have a semi-aquatic lifestyle, it would want a density a little below the density of freshwater. And they were saying it's possible Spinosaurus swallowed gastroliths to help it sink, reduce its buoyancy. They're saying in air-breathing plesiosaurs, they didn't have to have gastroliths to start sinking, but it probably would have helped them be stable and control their buoyancy when they're underwater with their compressed lungs. Mm -hmm. And presumed gastroliths have been found in Baryonyx, which is a close relative of Spinosaurus, and maybe those were swallowed on purpose to help with the reducing of buoyancy. Then they also mentioned how Spinosaurus's center of mass would have mattered, and having a straight neck when swimming moves its center of mass forward and makes it easier to swim as opposed to having an S-shaped neck, which would move the center of mass back and make it easier to walk on land. Interesting. Yeah. So then the next thing they discussed was the hydrodynamic aspects, which is the motion of fluids and forces acting on solid things that are in the fluids, like basically how Spinosaurus would have worked in water. And they looked at newts, but they said that that comparison to Spinosaurus was unrealistic because the size is obviously very different. And they said, quote, the relationship is comparable to that of a small rowing boat and a super tanker. Hmm. It also makes it hard to compare the shapes of the tails that propel both animals. But they said the newt didn't need much energy to start moving, and Spinosaurus would have needed more energy to start moving, but it could glide for longer periods. And they also think Spinosaurus had a flexible skeleton, or more flexible skeleton, that would be important in future studies about its lifestyle. So then they talked about two different ways that Spinosaurus swam. There was the slow and continuous way, and then the fast way. And for the slow and continuous way, they said it would have done that by, quote, undulations of the distal part of the tail, basically moving the tail, and then using its probably webbed feet to help it move around, and then the dorsal sail would help keep it stable. Now, when it swam fast, they proposed that it used its whole body and the sail would have helped, quote, contribute to the thrust, end quote, like fish. Hmm. And they also said that they thought the tail shape was best suited for, quote, persistent, slow swimming in search for prey. It sounds like they're doing the same comparison that Nizar did with the crocodilians, basically, like the slow moving of the tail over long distance. Yeah, and they, they do talk a lot about crocodiles, especially the tails of crocodiles. But then they were saying with the Spinosaurus, there's a lot of these, as they put it, unconsidered effects. 
and different properties and roughness around the tail and things like that. They also discussed if the head crest was an adaptation to pivot feeding. The head crest? Yeah, and they're saying spinosaurs may have had these rapid head movements. There's crests found in all known spinosaurids, such as baryonyx and irritator. And they might be for more than just display. I don't remember an obvious head crest on Spinosaurus. I had to look it up too, and I guess it's kind of small because the head's so long, so you don't necessarily notice it right away. It's above the eyes, though? Yeah, depending on the paleo art you're looking at. It looks a little bit different. I see some above the eyes, some a little further down the snout. It's just like a small triangular bump on the, near the top of the head. Triangular? I really don't remember this. When you look at Spinosaurus, you're mostly looking at the sail and maybe the tail and the long snout. So, yeah, it's easy to miss. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at a picture of a skeleton. It does have a little bit of a triangular sort of crest in between its eyes, but it's really small. Mm -hmm. It's like, what, maybe a 5% the height of one of its sails on its back or less? (laughs) (laughs) Very tidy. So it used that for a functional purpose? So maybe in Irritator, Suze et al. had hypothesized that the crest was important for forcefully biting down on prey because it would strengthen the narrow snout and part of the skull. So in Spinosaurus, the crest may have helped it with pivot feeding. It would turn the head upward to get to the prey and then pivot on the neck joint. Pivot feeding, we see them in seahorses, and their head shape minimizes the hydrodynamic disturbance and reduces friction. But you can't compare seahorses directly to Spinosaurus because obviously they're very different in size. And this paper, which is looking at Reynolds numbers, that says that affects their Reynolds numbers and restrictions in the water. And seahorse heads are a lot bigger than the prey, which is not the case with Spinosaurus. Hmm. Spinosaurus went after much larger prey. Because of this, Spinosaurus may have needed a head shape to minimize disturbances in the water while it's going after the prey. It'd be as stealthy as possible. And the crest possibly functioned, quote, as a cranial keel that provided stability and streamlined swimming, end quote. I don't know about that. It's really small. (laughs) Yeah. I guess maybe if while it was alive, it had a huge growth coming out of it or like a big keratin covering or something. But none of the recreations really have that. I can't imagine that it would be much of a keel with such a tiny little thing when the head is already kind of (laughs) bumpy. Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe. Or it's just like, let's look at these other parts of it. to Because they were saying, you know, you want a coherent image of Spinosaurus when you're thinking about whether or not it was aquatic or semi-aquatic. Mm-hmm. And that's how they concluded, you know, when you just need to take into consideration the whole body. And they said the Spinosaurus crest may have, quote, increased snout stability minimized hydrodynamic disturbance for slow, stealthy swimming, and reduced friction for fast swimming and pivot feeding, end quote. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of other animals, though, that have crests on their head, which aren't proposed to be semi-aquatic, so I don't know about that. Yeah, but maybe if you take into account other factors. Yeah, maybe. The authors also said it would be interesting to know Spinosaurus surface structures, which I think they meant scales by that, and then how that would affect surface drag and friction. And then they ended with, quote, we think that maybe it is time to ask if Spinosaurus was semi-terrestrial 
and we look forward to the full-body model simulation announced in National Geographic. And I tried to look that up, and I didn't see that announcement. (laughs) I think maybe they're just hinting to Nizar and his paper about how, like, they were mostly looking at the tail, and then later on they'd be talking about more of the animal. Could be. Could be. But, man, I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical about some of these (laughs) these comparisons, (laughs) because, like, I don't know. The huge sail in terms of making it swim faster and being useful for high-speed swimming. Most aquatic animals just get as streamlined as possible. They don't grow big bony structures out of the top of them, and especially ones that are as far from the body as on Spinosaurus. Mm. It just seems weird. They're saying the sail with the tail undulations, there's you know ways they work together. Yeah, I mean, I I understand what they're saying. It just seems like, it almost seems like trolling to say, well, it's so aquatic that we have to wonder if it's semi-terrestrial. Oh, I see, I see. It's like, it's got huge feet, it's got legs, and it's got (laughs) hands with claws. It doesn't have flippers. You know, something that's semi-terrestrial, if you were ever going to use that word, would be something like a sea lion, where it's all flippers, and then it like flops up onto the shore. This is not at all in that sort of world. They're also saying the sail could have provided stability and helped with the thrust when it's going faster. Yeah, I just don't I don't really buy it. Because with, for example, a sailfish, which always seems to be the analogy, mm-hmm. they put their sail down. It folds down when they're swimming fast. And then they bring it up and it's either there's like a couple of proposed reasons. Some of it is to turn quickly. Some of it is to confuse prey and things like that, or as a display structure, but it's not as like uh, an aid in swimming fast. That's the thing oh, that seems so weird. They cite a paper about fish, and they're saying that the tail, when Spinosaurus would have been going fast, it would have shed a, they call it a vortex wake, and it would modify the flow environment for the tail, which I guess is similar to fish. Yeah, I don't know. Crocodiles do fine swimming with their tail without a huge sail on their back. <laughs> just doesn't seem like think, a required structure. I think we have to wait for future papers because Nizar Ibrahim definitely told us that there was more stuff coming out. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. They're, they're bringing up a lot of interesting things that people should consider basically about the dynamics of the animal in the water that we should be carefully looking at mm-hmm. what it would be like in the water. But generally, when you do that, It's more about how streamlined it is Mm. because that's what, you know, it's like if you imagine putting it in a wind tunnel, it's a similar sort of thing. It's like the more streamlined, it's going to be able to go faster. That's what you see in almost all aquatic animals. The paper is tagged hypothesis and it's called contributions to a discussion. So I think it's just to get us thinking about other aspects here. Yeah. I don't think they were trolling. (laughs) (laughs) The semi-terrestrial line I thought was a little bit trolly, but the rest of it doesn't seem like trolling. It just seems like very... Interesting. I think this is a debate that's going to go on for many years. I think you're right. It's probably going to go back and forth for a long time. There's still papers coming out around Taurosaurus and Triceratops. So beauty of science is we're always building on it. That is true. I'm sure there are some aspects of that paper which will be really useful in future debates. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So enough about carnivores. I've got a titanosaur paper for you. All right. Bring it back to the (laughs) sauropods. This one was a paper published in Chemical Geology by Stefano et al. And they were attempting to recreate the lives of titanosaurs in La Rioja, northwestern Argentina. And that area is famous for all of its nests. Nice. So looking at titanosaur nests mostly. They were using clumped isotopes as a paleothermometer and clumped isotopes. I had to look it up because I don't know. I forgot that term. It's in this case abbreviated as delta 47 isotopes and mostly they're carbonates formed from carbon 13, oxygen 18, and oxygen 16. So when you add up 16, 18, and 13, you get 47. And the reason they're called clumped isotopes is because at high temperatures, the heavier isotopes tend to clump together. So you get more carbon-13 and oxygen-18. The most common are carbon-12 and oxygen-16. So carbon-13 and 18 are the heavier isotopes, and they're clumping together in this delta-47 compound. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you can look at a carbonate and see if it has a bunch of these clumped isotopes, and that'll tell you that it was in a warmer environment than other things that don't have those clumped isotopes, or at least as high of a fraction of those clumped isotopes. So the researchers used mostly eggshells from three titanosaur nesting sites, but they also had a bone and a tooth. Because we know environments that preserve eggshells don't necessarily always preserve bones and teeth super well. Mm -hmm. The clumped isotopes of the eggshells gave a body temperature estimate of very roughly 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. In the paper, they actually were talking a lot about how 
their data was showing higher temperatures, but they didn't think that the quality of a lot of their samples was good. And you end up getting different temperatures depending on how well the things are preserved. So you have to put a bunch of effort into seeing how well your sample is preserved to see if that clumped isotope analysis is gonna be of any value, because it can change a lot during the fossilization process. And that's what they're finding, that a lot of it looked more like the surrounding rock and seemed to be getting screwed up. But they took something like 80 samples, and I think they found like three of them seemed to be in really good shape. So it's a good thing they had so many samples to work from because that gave them something to work with. But in the end, what they're saying is basically titanosaurs probably had stable high body temperatures, or as the authors put it, at least the females did, because hmm. these are only eggs and the mm -hmm. males didn't grow eggs. And again, the eggshells tell you about the adult that's laying the egg because the eggshell forms inside their body. It has nothing to do with what temperature the baby was while it was in the ground because the eggshell was already formed by that point. And it stayed that warm. While it was forming, yeah. Okay. So they were getting like, I guess, a relatively consistent number within an egg. And so they think it was a stable temperature. I mean, it's probably... In general, when something is so huge as a titanosaur, they have relatively stable temperatures anyway, mm -hmm. just because they get that gigantothermy thing going on where it just takes a long time for their body temperature to change. So it tends to be more stable. Aside from body temperature, they could also do a little bit of analysis with the carbon-13 isotopes on their own, not just in the clumpingness with the oxygen-18. And that was to figure out if they're eating C3 or C4 plants. I've mentioned that before. What they found was that they were mostly eating C3 plants, which isn't too surprising since it's a more common photosynthesis type, the C3 photosynthesis. C3PO. That's what I keep hearing when you say C3. <laughs> C3 photo. <laughs> C3PO. <laughs> so C3 photosynthesis is more common than C4 photosynthesis. C4 includes a lot of grasses, which we don't think dinosaurs ate very often, especially considering these weren't the very latest Jurassic. So yeah, it's not surprising that they're eating a lot of C3 plants. And in general, the isotopes in this study were consistent with other studies from around the world, which just sort of gives us a picture that titanosaurs were pretty consistent in where they created and laid their eggs. So they were probably in similar conditions around the world, at least when they were in the mating season mm -hmm. or the laying season. So they figured out what works and they all stuck to it. Yeah, or they just had specific requirements, so they had to stick to it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they lived year-round at these spots. It was basically like a certain range of latitudes, not really high latitudes. So this could be why we don't find sauropods near the poles. But then the authors also tried to sort of extrapolate this information about body temperature and nesting sites and things like that to determine some other behaviors. And they basically said because they had a really high body temperature, it would take a lot of food to maintain that high body temperature. So, quote, titanosaurs likely had a nomadic lifestyle, end quote. Basically, they were going to have to eat a lot of food. Mm -hmm. And so they would have to move around to get the food. So that's why Littlefoot didn't start off in the Great Valley because they were nomads. He was born somewhere else. That actually works pretty well, yeah, because they even said they might l go somewhere else to lay their eggs, mm -hmm. which would be what happened with Littlefoot, and then they got to go back to where the food is. Mm. That's a very interesting connection you made there. I can always <laughs> make connections to Land Before Time. <laughs> that one's pretty on the nose, too, <laughs> especially because they all, like, know where to go back to. They've all been to this place with the food, right? but they had to, like, go there to lay the egg. Mm-hmm. 
Although the parents, the difference is that they did emphasize the fact that we're pretty sure titanosaurs didn't raise their young, so there wouldn't be any leading of Littlefoot back to the Great Valley. Well, nobody led him. But they were planning (laughs) on it until Sharptooth showed up. Yeah, that's true. Which wouldn't be the... Sharptooth was raising its babies, and Littlefoot's parents bailed. We saw no sharp teeth babies. Yeah, exactly. So that that's there's your inaccuracy with the land before time. I, there's there are f- talking dinosaurs for what speaking <laughs> English, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> also stegosaurus with triceratops. True. Did you say the original land before time wasn't supposed to have any dialogue? I think that's yeah, they were considering it and then they thought it'd be too scary for kids. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, back to this paper. (laughs) So in addition to that detail about the nomadic lifestyle, they think that the density of nests where they did nest might show that they return to the same areas seasonally to breed. And given that those environments of the nest seem pretty arid, that's like your little foot analogy. You know, they might have to go somewhere else shortly afterwards to eat. Mm -hmm. It might also mean that titanosaurs had to fast to reach their nests. Just like penguins. Yeah, that was, I saw that as like a title of another article, Mm -hmm. like, you know. uh, An article about this article? Yeah, but I don't think it really applies at all because, first of all, the penguins hang out with their eggs for a really long time. True. And the authors emphasized how brief of a period the fasting would be because they wouldn't stay with the eggs. So they would just go there, lay the eggs, and then leave, which isn't very penguiny. And also, they just bury the eggs. So... It's just, I don't know. There's just not a lot in common with the penguins, I don't think. <laughs> but people love penguins, so I can see why that connection was made. <laughs> they did also say that if they did have to fast for a long time, say they had to trek really far in order to get to this place through a lot of arid environment or terrain or something, that they would have had, quote unquote, good fasting endurance because they are pretty large with presumably a relatively high amount of stored fat. So if anything could handle a little bit of fasting, it's a 50-ton sauropod. Yeah, I could see that. (laughs) Yeah. They also said that fasting is a lot easier for warm-blooded animals when the weather is warm, too, because basically you're not using a bunch of energy Mm -hmm. to warm up. So laying eggs in the summer, in the heat, for example, would have been easier for them. And so maybe it wasn't that hard for them to trek out into the same spot to lay eggs, even if there wasn't a lot of food around, Mm -hmm. if they only had to do it once a year or something. And you can, even with humans, on hot days, you're not as hungry. Yeah, that is a thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The one last thing that was kind of interesting is they found that eggs seem to be clustered around a lot of hydrothermal crystals, which they did a little analysis on. And they found that the titanosaurs might have been using hydrothermal activity to incubate their eggs which has been previously proposed, but it would also explain why maybe they were returning to the same places because if they needed extra warm ground because they were too big to sit on their own eggs to incubate them, then they would have to return to these areas that had that warm ground. Couldn't just lay it in the Great Valley with all the plants. Got to trek out to that seismically active area like they did in Land Before Time. That was their downfall. It was, yeah. Well, that and sharp tooth. Yeah. The sharp tooth only got to them because of the earth shakes. <laughs> the earth shakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when talking about land before time, use the language of land before time. I guess so, yeah. So there you go. Titanosaurs probably had hot body temperatures, might have laid eggs in the same places, might not have eaten in those places. 
and ate a lot of not grass. Sort of the gist of what they found. All right. Well, speaking of Triceratops from Land Before Time, well, not really, but this next item is about Triceratops called Big John. Big John is the world's, I think, largest known Triceratops skeleton, Mm. and it's going to auction soon. It's about 26 feet or 8 meters long, 200 or so bones, about 60% complete, 75% of the skulls complete. It's pretty good. Yeah. It was found in 2014 in South Dakota by Walter W. Stein Bill, and I guess it's been restored in Italy, or is being restored. It's going on display in Paris on October 18th, and then going to auction on the 21st of October, and they're estimating it's going to sell for... to $1.8 million, U.S. dollars. Yeah, that's that's a healthy sum for a ceratopsian. As you can imagine, there are debates online about this. About it being sold? Yeah, just dinosaur skeleton going to auction. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's without, I don't think that's outside the realm of something that a museum could pay, or at least some of the bigger museums. Yeah, maybe. So if somebody really wants it, I think it could end up in a museum. But- the bigger question is, is there enough data that was collected with it to make it something that a museum wants? Because right. if it's already being like fully prepared somewhere and it's just like a big pretty triceratops, then that's not as interesting for museums as if they did the preparing or they know all the details about where it came from and have good documentation and all that kind of stuff. True. But having so much of the skull complete is interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize that 75% of the skull was unusual. Me either, because we always hear about or see big ceratopsian skulls. Yeah, but it's always hard to tell how much of it is original, how yeah. much is like blaster that's slapped out after. That's true. But 60% of the skeleton in general is definitely a lot mm-hmm. because, yeah, you find a lot of ceratopsian skulls, but you don't find a ton of ceratopsian ribs and vertebrae and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. In Yokohama, Japan, at the Pacifico Yokohama Convention Center, they've got a dinosaur display right now called Dino Science, the Dinosaurs of Laramidia. And it includes another Triceratops known as Lane, Lane the Triceratops. I like that all these dinosaurs have names. They also have on display a Gorgosaurus with a brain tumor, another young Triceratops and a young T-Rex. And then they've also got CG images of dinosaurs. Well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. The exhibition's on from now until September 12th. You do have to make reservations at least for weekends. I think it gets pretty crowded. And Lane the Triceratops is on loan from the Houston Museum of Natural Science. So if you're in Houston and you think it sounds really cool. You can probably see Lane at a later date. Yeah. (laughs) But they might have put a replica on display or something. True. In New Zealand, I'm going to try to pronounce this, but we couldn't find a pronunciation online. The Wirinaki... Where Taunga. It's Maori for Museum Trust. Yes. It has the exhibit called Dinosaur Revolution Secrets of Survival. And that was made by Louis V. Ray and Gondwana Studios. You can see fossil casts, a nest of dinosaur eggs, animatronic dinosaurs, a big T Rex towering over an armored dinosaur. I couldn't tell which one exactly by the picture. Yeah. That's all it can do. It can only tower over it. It's not going to be able to <laughs> do any damage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there was a time where it did damage to something that Maybe. had armor on the back. Yeah. I mean, they coexisted with Ankylosaurus, and those are pretty tough. Yeah, that's true. I'm thinking they just looked at them and thought, man, I wish I could eat that, but I can't. <laughs> I don't want to get clubbed. 
So that exhibit's open from now until September 26th. And I think it's a traveling exhibit. So I wonder if it'll end up anywhere else after. All right, now we're getting into dinosaur media. There's a new show coming out, Garrett, at the end of the month, September 30th, called Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs. Is this a Flintstones-related thing? Sure is. It's about Pebbles and Bam Bam. I kind of liked Pebbles and Bam Bam. Yeah, they hang out with Dino in the Crags, which is like some area outside of Bedrock. They're a little older than in the original, because in the original series, they're just babies, but now they're older kids, old enough to hang out in the Crags. <laughs> and it sounds like they run into a lot of dinosaurs. I really like the stuff. I couldn't remember what it reminded me of, but it reminded me of the animation style reminds me of some shows I really like that I wish I remembered. For some reason, when you were describing this, I just assumed it was live action because I feel like everybody's turning all the cartoons into live action, mm. but it's still a cartoon. Yes, it is. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll watch it. <laughs> You'll watch at least one episode. If there's a lot of dinosaurs, I'll enjoy it. Yeah, I'm really hoping there are. At the very least, they've got Dino. Yeah, Dino. Uh, Dino's just like a whatever the dog equivalent of anthropomorphic is. Mm -hmm. It's like dog promorphic or something. <laughs> like they turn a dinosaur into a dog. Yeah. So it's okay, but it's not very dinosaur-y. It's still a sauropod. Dino's supposed to be a sauropod? I thought so. I always thought it was a hadrosaur. I'm pretty sure it's a sauropod. It's so generic looking that it's like it could be whatever you want it to be, I think. I think that just shows our bias. <laughs> it doesn't look like an ankylosaur to me. Well, yeah, that would be hard to pull off. More than anything, it looks like Eeyore. <laughs> Much happier than Eeyore, though. <laughs> yeah. If we end up liking it, I'm sure we'll talk about it on this show. There was another preview of Jurassic World Dominion, too, but I think there's spoilers here. Okay. I'll take your word for it. So if you don't want to know, I guess fast forward a little bit here. They showed about 90 seconds of a preview at CinemaCon 2021. And there were a lot of different scenes in that 90 seconds. So Colin Trevorrow told people that the film Jurassic World Dominion is looking to answer the question, if dinosaurs lived amongst us, would you be safe? Uh, that's what I was hoping it'd be like. Mm -hmm. The answer is no, I would die immediately. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of dreams about this as a kid. I've explored it from multiple angles, and all answers lead to me getting eaten. Oh, no. <laughs> Good thing that's not happening. So there were a few articles about this, and one of them, I think it was the Gizmodo article, they said, you know, I, I tried to remember everything, but there was so much flashing in 90 seconds. I don't remember all the details exactly. But yeah, some of the scenes were like a pair of Brachiosaurus being led by a bunch of vehicles in a snow-covered quarry. So there's snow. I think we might have known about the snow earlier when we heard about where they were shooting. After we were just talking about how titanosaurs need warm environments and have high body temperatures. Right, right. Wonder about that. This, maybe these Brachiosaurus aren't trying to lay eggs, so it's okay. Oh, good point. Yeah. And then you've got Owen Grady riding a motorcycle after some dinosaurs. <sighs> there's a couple of scenes of Ellie Sattler. There's one where she's in a lab and then one where she's in some cage and water's pouring in. There's a rampaging T-Rex, a screaming Dilophosaurus. <laughs> screaming Dilophosaurus. That's how it was described, yeah. <laughs> also a Triceratops smashing a Jeep. I guess Dilophosaurus made like quite a roar before it spit the venom in the first Jurassic Park. Maybe I, that's what they're going on. I think there's going to be a lot of callbacks. Probably. Uh, there's obviously shots of Alan Grant, Ian Malcolm, Claire Deering. She's being chased by possibly a Velociraptor. Then there's a clip of a Mosasaur eating a helicopter. What? Yeah. <laughs> 
that thing mosasaurs really like to eat chunks of metal. Never had the chance before. (laughs) (laughs) So it's meant to be a conclusion to all the other previous five movies, which is where I think there might be callbacks. Yeah. Well, that's how it goes. You make six in a row and then you go back and you do the prequels. And then you do the in-betweens. Like Star Wars? And then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they only did three before doing prequels. Mm. Yeah, I hope it's not the end, the end. There's still Camp Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. Maybe there'll be some other spinoffs. Yeah, looking forward to Dominion. So Jurassic World Evolution 2, found out, comes out November 9th. I don't think we had a date before. We did not. You can pre-order it now. I guess I need to do that. <laughs> I guess so. In the trailer, I saw a Parasaurolophus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Gallimimus, T-Rex, Carnotaurus, Brachiosaurus. And then you can also, I learned, feed a shark to a Mosasaur. Hmm. Well, I guess that was in the trailer. That's how I learned it. (laughs) I saw that trailer. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. Between a, a helicopter and a shark, the Mosasaur would probably prefer the shark. Yes. It is, in fact, food and not chunks of inorganic (laughs) material yeah so in the game they got four modes there's campaign which is a narrative arc and it happens after jurassic world fallen kingdom oh there's chaos mode which is moments from the films with these what if scenarios there's challenge mode which is if you want to rear your dinos and there's 75 species of animals they're not just dinosaurs i think they're mostly dinosaurs mostly dinosaurs but then you got the mosasaur you got some of the pterosaurs And then there's sandbox mode. So the game's going to have mountains, deserts, snowy peaks, and new terrain dangers like thunderstorms. In PC Gamer, they talked about the first chapter of the campaign mode. There's a poacher ring that was recently broken up. And you need to find the dangerous dinosaurs in the wild like Allosaurus. And there's a video, too, of the director of the game, Rich Newbold, talking about some of the new animals with Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum's also voicing Ian Malcolm again in the game. And I liked how he described one of them. He said, the pterodactyl of terror had mean eyes. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I feel like pterodactyl terror might be the title of one of the cards in the Dinosaurs Attack series that you got me for my birthday. Oh, I don't remember. It sounds familiar. There's definitely a something terror in there. and They use a lot of alliteration. <laughs> CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Pisanosaurus, which was a request from Ricardo via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. 
Pisanosaurus was a primitive dinosauriform that lived in the Triassic in what is now La Rioja, Argentina. Just like the Titanosaurus we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Since it's from the Triassic, it's a different formation, though. True. The Esquigualasto formation. There's an ongoing debate about whether or not Pisanosaurus is, in fact, a dinosaur. But at a minimum, it's a dinosaur form? Yes. Well, sort of. I, I will get into that. <laughs> <laughs> it was small, lightly built, probably bipedal. It had a small head, long legs. It was probably a fast runner. It was herbivorous. Oh, weird. Because it's an early dinosaur. I yeah. See. Yeah. Not a lot of herbivorous Triassic dinosaurs. I think that was based on its teeth. It was estimated to be 3.3 feet or one meters long and estimated to weigh between 5 to 20 pounds or 2.3 to 9.1 kilograms. A partial skeleton was found in 1962. The fossils were found by Jose Bonaparte, Rafael Herbst, and the preparators Martin Vince and Galileo Scaglia. The holotype includes a partial skull with parts of the right jaw and teeth, cervical vertebrae, dorsal vertebrae, rib fragments, parts of the pelvis, femora, tibia, fibula, parts of the toes, and more. Pretty good. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually very incomplete. There's a lot of fragments. Oh, so those are, yeah, parts of apply to all of those things. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's why it's been hard to classify this and whether or not it's actually a dinosaur. It was described in 1967 by Rodolfo Casamiquela, and the type species is Pisanosaurus mertii. The genus name means Pisano's lizard. It's in honor of the paleontologist Juan Arnaldo Pisano. And the species name is in honor of the naturalist Carlos Merti. It was originally thought to be a, quote, very primitive ornithopod that probably represents an ad hoc family, end quote. Casamiquela said that it was a surprise of a dinosaur, especially, quote, in light of the paucity of remains of representatives of the Ornithischia throughout the entire geologic column in South America, end quote. So when he named Pisanosaurus, he also named a new family Pisanosauridae, but that name's no longer used. As I mentioned, Pisanosaurus has been reclassified many times as a heterodontosaurid, fabrosaurid, hypsilophodont, the earliest known ornithischian, and a psilosaurid, which is a clade of dinosauriforms and the sister group to dinosaurs. And as I mentioned, that's mostly because of the incomplete fossils found. The orientation of the pubis of Pisanosaurus is unclear. Some reconstructions have it forward-pointing, like in Sauruskins. In 1976, Jose Bonaparte re-described Pisanosaurus and said it had some distinct characters, such as the hip joint being open and the metacarpals in the hand being long. In 1991 and 2012, Serino suggested Pisanosaurus was a chimera and that the skull fragments, pelvis, and distal hind limb could be from one individual, but the rest belonged to another taxon based on the proportions not resembling the same shape or size of similar bones in heterodontosaurids, and he said there wasn't much justification for the association of the bones and impressions that had been found. In 2004, Norman and others suggested that the skull bones were ornithischian and the postcrania was similar to bones of a non-dinosaur. In 2007, Irmis and others said the fossils, quote, cannot be regarded as a chimera based simply on character incongruence between different regions of the body, end quote. In 2009, Novas accepted that the holotype of Pisanosaurus was one individual. 
Bonaparte in 1976 had included a sketch of the fossils the way he found them in the field, and it looked like it belonged to one individual. But then in 2012, Serino reiterated that he thought it was a chimera? Yes, so lots of debate around this. And in 2017, though, Federico Agnolin and Sebastian Rosadia wrote a paper about the phylogenetic reassessment of Pisanosaurus and agreed the fossils were all from one individual. So it sounds like they thought it was one individual for a long time. A bunch of people thought they were multiple individuals and now we're more or less agreed that it's one individual again. Yes. There's been a lot of redescription of the features of Pisanosaurus too. In the 2017 paper, they wrote about the fragmentary skeleton, including the partial jaws, dorsal vertebrae, four fragmentary vertebrae in an uncertain position in the column. It was thought to be caudal vertebrae, but then a later redescription found it to be cervical vertebrae, and then later it was thought to be something else. It was uncertain what. (laughs) There's Hmm. also the impression of part of the pelvis and sacrum, partial hind limb, a left scapular blade that was lost, a probably metacarpal three, and impressions of some other metacarpals that were also lost. It's a bummer that they're losing things, too. That makes it harder and harder as time goes on. I'm sure that added to some of the confusion. So they talked about Pisanosaurus being described from an incomplete, poorly preserved skeleton, and that makes it really hard to describe. And they said parts of the description was tentative because of this. They also talked about a recent description of the clade Psilosauridae as having teeth like Ornithischians. And they suggested that Pisanosaurus was part of Psilosauridae, the non-dinosaurian dinosauriform, based on the teeth being similar. It had reduced denticles as well as teeth fused to the maxilla and dentary bone, and other similarities like the sacral ribs between two sacral vertebrae. They thought that Pisanosaurus had been previously thought to be an Ornithischian, mainly because of its teeth and teeth-bearing bones. But they wrote, quote, However, it is worth noting that archosaurs, other than Ornithischians, showing such a specialized dentition were unknown before the early 2000s, end quote. And that's because Psilosaurus was described in 2003, and researchers in 2005 and 2007 mentioned how similar dentition in Revueltasaurus, a pseudosuchian, and basal psilosaurids show how the diversity of Triassic archosaurs with highly derived, quote-unquote, masticatory morphology, how they chewed, still isn't that well understood. And they said that this means that herbivorous-like dentition, you know, the teeth that made them probably herbivores, was more widespread than previously thought, and that herbivory happened more than once within archosaurs. Interesting. Well, we know that happened more than once within archosaurs. We know it happened more than once within dinosaurs or even theropods. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that it happened as early as a Triassic. That's interesting. Yeah. Other than maybe sauropods or sauropodomorphs. So Pisanosaurus, the maxilla and dentary, had about 15 tooth positions, which is the same as Psilosaurus and Heterodontosaurus. The teeth found were very fragmented, weathered, and cracked. So it's hard to know the exact number of teeth or what they looked like. The dentary had characters considered to be Ornithischian. Originally, they were described as having, quote, barricade-like dentition. (laughs) Hmm. But it's hard to compare them with psilosaurids because the published specimens are incompletely preserved. Later descriptions found the teeth did not form a barricade-like dentition. So Pisanosaurus has some dental features in common with Ornithischians, like non-recurved, low-crowned teeth, 
and low crown teeth are like what humans have. But you can see these characters in, quote, several Triassic herbivorous archosaur lineages, including the Pseudosuchian, Revoltosaurus, and Psilosaurus, such as, well, Psilosaurus. The authors of this, we're still talking about the 2017 paper, tentatively reconstructed the pelvis to be cup-shaped, also known as acetabular morphology, and that's different from Ornithischians. They said that Pisanosaurus didn't have features that made it obvious that it was an Ornithischian or even a dinosaur, but it did have some features similar to other psilosaurids. And they mentioned how Pisanosaurus was thought to be a heterodontosaurid for a while, but heterodontosaurid teeth are different from Pisanosaurus. So they found Pisanosaurus to be a quote-unquote stem dinosaur, probably part of Psilosauridae, but it may also belong to a quote still poorly known clade of stem dinosauriforms. They concluded, based on phylogenetic analysis, that Pisanosaurus should not be considered the oldest known Ornithischian, which the author said was consistent with a 2011 study by Olson and others that found Ornithischian radiation happened after the Triassic-Jurassic boundary. Yeah, that's what I'm used to, is seeing it after the boundary. Mm -hmm. But there's been more debate. <laughs> also in 2017, Matthew Barron wrote, quote, Pisanosaurus mertii and the Triassic Ornithischian crisis, could phylogeny offer a solution? I'm guessing that's part of the Ornithoscolida thing, considering the author? <laughs> yeah, this was a separate paper, though. He wrote, quote, here I propose that phylogeny could hold the solution to this problem. I examine how an alternative position for Ornithischia, nested either within Theropoda or Sauropodomorpha, could be the reason behind their later appearance and relative rarity in the early Jurassic. An early Jurassic origin of Ornithischia would force us to consider that the anatomical similarities between Ornithischians and early Jurassic taxa might not be convergences, and to broaden the current datasets of early dinosaurs to test these ideas. He's always mixing up that early dinosaur tree. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. Me too. Then in 2020, Julia de Soho and others looked at fossils from the late Triassic Isquigualasto formation, where Pisanosaurus was found. And they said that though three papers found Pisanosaurus to not be an Ornithischian, the, quote, Ornithischian affinity of Pisanosaurus mertii was only questioned on numerical phylogenetic grounds, end quote. So they looked at all the previous studies and the specimen, and they found it to be more likely as an Ornithischian than a Psilosaurid. Oh, man. So we so go we're going back. back again. Yeah. They reviewed Pisanosaurus traits, the anatomical traits, and they found that the traits that arguably made it a Psilosaurid were traits that were plesiomorphic for dinosauriforms. It's an ancestral character. And it was also in other dinosauromorphs and early dinosaurs. They also found more than 10 characters shared by Pisanosaurus and Heterodontosaurids or other early Ornithischians among early dinosaur forms. So they said Pisanosaurus is from about 229 million years ago, and it's the oldest known Ornithischian in the latest Carnian in the late Triassic. That is very old for an Ornithischian, about 30 million years older than any other ones I know of. Yeah, they specifically said it, quote, fills the long speculated ghost lineage between younger members of that clade and the oldest known Sauruskian dinosaurs at 233 million years ago, end quote. They also said in the future there's going to be a quantitative analysis of the phylogenetic relationships of Pisanosaurus, but that was out of scope for their paper. Also in 2020, it's a big year for Pisanosaurus. Yeah. Mueller and Garcia had another hypothesis 
that Pisanosaurus was a transitional taxon between Psilosaurids and Ornithischians. Oh, that sounds like barren. Yeah. And then, this year, it's actually coming out in the print version in October of this year, 2021, Fernando Novas and others came out with a review of the fossil record of early dinosaurs from South American and its phylogenetic implications that's been published in or will be published in the Journal of South American Earth Sciences, but it's available online, which is how I got it. So they wrote, quote, the early evolution of dinosaurs was a complex process that occurred in the context of a crowded ecospace. And they also wrote that, quote, there's no consensus about early dinosaur phylogeny and our paper is not the exception. They did support the Ornithischia and Saurischia groupings, not Ornithischelida. And they studied a bunch of specimens, including Pisanosaurus. They mentioned some debate that psilosaurids may be included within Ornithischia, and it's easy to reinterpret how to classify their characters because they have a high degree of shared characters that are not from a common ancestor, also known as homoplasy. That's interesting that they... (laughs) Because the debate was, is it a psilosaurid, which isn't a dinosaur, or mm-hmm. is it an ornithischian? And they're just saying, well, psilosaurids are ornithischians, <laughs> so then it doesn't really matter. Then either way, Pisanosaurus would be a dinosaur, and it's just which group is it in within Dinosauria? Yes. Well, their conclusion overall was, quote, there are currently major uncertainties concerning the phylogenetic relationships of Pisanosaurus. So it's just another case if you need more fossils. We still don't know for sure. Yeah, and that's basically what they said, right? Ours is no exception to Mm -hmm. this list of inconsistencies. If Pisanosaurus is considered to be an Ornithischian, because it's the only one from the Triassic, it would help fill this 30 million year gap, because the next known Ornithischians were from the early Jurassic, like Lesuthosaurus. Fossils of Pisanosaurus are in the vertebrate paleontological collection at the Instituto Miguel Leo in Argentina. Pisanosaurus lived in a warm, humid climate with ferns, horsetails, and conifers, and other animals that lived around the same time and place included Herrerasaurus, Eoraptor, beaked reptiles, spiny armored reptiles, and lots of other herbivorous animals. And a bunch of non-dinosaurs. A lot of them were weird because it's a Triassic. Yep. Including maybe the non-dinosaur Pisanosaurus. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's unclear. <laughs> And our fun fact of the day involves scavenging, which is a little bit gross, so you might not want to eat while listening to this. Just a warning. (laughs) It didn't start out gross. It wasn't supposed to be gross, but then... Then you made it gross. Well, I just, I read these papers, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of detail, which is really interesting, but it's it's gross. So I had to include it, because I just couldn't. So the question I was trying to answer is, how do scavengers not get sick from rotten food. And I found two really great articles. Oh, how does that not get gross? (laughs) Well, I just wanted to know, like, I thought they would just have some biological adaptations. Like, oh, they got this thing going on, that going on. But then the way people found it out and some of the other things they found out are kind of gross. So the first article I'm going to talk about is by Rogan Buck et al. from 2014. And they were looking at the microbiome of vultures And basically what they found is that vultures have a low diversity of gut bacteria. Hmm. So they only have about 76 taxa in their gut compared with over 500 on their faces. On their faces. Wow. Which apparently isn't that uncommon for animals to have like more bacteria on their outside than on their inside. 
It's just a reminder that bacteria are everywhere. Yeah. I don't really think about on the face. They're everywhere. Yeah. They fill up all space. So there are two taxa in particular, though, Clostridia and Fusobacteria, which are the most common types of microorganism in their guts. Mm -hmm. And then they helpfully explain what these two things are because I'm not a microbiologist. So, quote, Clostridia specimens have been documented as the cause of severe food poisoning in both humans and chickens and are responsible for periodic die-off of wild birds such as waterfowl and shorebirds. Oh, no. So that's Clostridia. That's one of the main things in vulture microbiomes. Okay. Well, I guess they're eating dead birds, probably. Yeah, among many other dead things. And for the other one, they say, quote, Although the flesh-degrading fusobacteria have been reported to colonize the hindgut of living omnivorous and carnivorous animals, in humans they do so at negligible abundances, much less than 1%, and have recently been shown to promote colon cancer, end quote. Bad news. So both of these range in the amount that they are in the guts of these animals, but either of those can be most of the microorganisms. So it can be up to like 60, 70% of the microbiome can be just one of those. Hmm. In vultures. Yeah, in vultures. So they have a ton of this, these two specifically microorganism taxa in their guts. And the gross part is they say, quote, we reveal a likely fecal oral gut route for their origin, end quote. And that's when you knew this was going to get gross? <laughs> yes. Oh. And then the what that means, I kind of need to explain it because it's a little vague. Hmm. Vultures often use an existing natural orifice to get access to the meat that they want to eat. They don't have like strong beaks that can tear through flesh and things like that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things they'll do is they'll wait a couple of days for like it to soften up or for it to like pop from gases or for another animal to come over and tear open oh, a hole okay. so they can get inside. I always imagine there was an existing hole and then they stuck their head in. Yeah, so that's what they really like to do. And apparently their favorite entry point is the anus. Okay, hold on. I was By hole, I was thinking there was a rip from oh, a bite or something. Not, anyway. <laughs> that existing hole? Yeah. Yeah. So they can do that, but a lot of animals, when they die, they don't get torn open. Okay. Because vultures can be the first thing to get to a dead thing. So it's like it could die of a disease or it could die from an accident or old age or all these different things mm. that don't open them up. Although I did find some interesting article online talking about how vehicle collisions with animals is really fortuitous to vultures because they tend to like burst oh, them open a little bit. Makes it easy to get to the, the good meat. Exactly. But when they don't have that option and they don't want to wait, they go in the back way mm -hmm. and presumably on the way in, they end up ingesting some of the bacteria. Well, that would explain having all that bacteria on their face. Yeah, but you get bacteria on you. We have bacteria on our face too. That's true. But it also does explain though why they don't have feathers on their head. Mm -hmm. well, I think we've talked about that before, but not specifically entry through the anus. Yes, you do not want that stuck on your, your face feathers. So they have bald heads and they just dive in there and they eat and they end up getting this really gross bacteria in their gut. And they did a little bit of analysis, too, which was pretty interesting on whether or not their DNA has sort of nutrients for the clostridia and the fusobacteria, because we do that, and most animals do that. They like, we sort of culture a certain microbiome by sort of providing beneficial nutrients and things for the bacteria in our gut. And then we try to sort of have stuff that's helpful for us, and it's like a mutualistic relationship. But it turns out, they don't really want this stuff in their gut. In fact, most of the markers for things where it's like 
what's going on in their gut. They're trying to help other bacteria, maybe even trying to like suppress the clostridia and the fusobacteria. They just get a lot of it because they're eating super gross stuff hmm. and their body can just tolerate it better than other animals can. All right. Yeah. So a couple other animals, alligators seasonally also have more clostridia and fusobacteria when they're doing more scavenging. There's just different seasons. A lot of times they eat a lot of fish, but then other times they do more scavenging. And because of that, by phylogenetic bracketing, we could presume that dinosaurs might be able to handle these types of bacteria as well. Maybe. Because not all birds can. Right. But since alligators can and some birds can, and those are basically the two ends of the phylogenetic bracket around dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And maybe for the dinosaurs that were scavenging more. Yeah, exactly. So if Allosaurus was doing a lot of scavenging or if there was another dinosaur that did a lot of scavenging, mm -hmm. it's possible that they could handle it because we, they had these types of bacteria. We did wonder about the rotting meat. Aspect. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly, though, hyenas don't have much of these bacteria hmm. in their gut, even though they scavenge quite a bit, too. Probably more than crocodiles, even. Wow. I wonder why. I don't know. We're mammals. We got different things going on. Yeah. So once you know the gut microbiome, then the question is basically like, how can they handle all that stuff in their gut? And how do they prevent even more harmful things from colonizing their gut? Mm -hmm. So there's an article by Chung et al. from one year later in 2015, which addresses this question. They were comparing the Cenarius vulture to the bald eagle. And they did that because they're in a pretty closely related group. They're both in the same family. In addition to both being raptors, they're actually a lot more closely related than that. The Cenarius vulture is also known as the black vulture or monk vulture. If you've ever heard of those, it's the same thing. They're found mostly in Asia, especially in like China, Mongolia, but also in the Middle East, and then a little bit in Southern Europe too. They weigh about nine and a half kilograms or 21 pounds, making them one of the world's heaviest raptors <laughs> as a big animal. I was thinking that's light, but I've been looking at a lot of di non-avian dinosaur data lately. I was thinking of in terms of like birds I've seen yeah, or even true. like birds of prey. This is a big animal. The authors of the paper say it, quote, plays a key role in the ecosystem by removing carcasses, thus preventing the spread of diseases, end quote. But obviously that exposes them to tons of diseases. Mm -hmm. And I did find another paper that I'm not going to go into, but other than to say that vultures and other large animals that do a lot of scavenging are really helpful to people because then smaller animals do less scavenging and the most notable one is probably rats and mice mm -hmm. and so then they don't get close to us and spread disease to us oh. so it's so they're very helpful yeah vultures exactly it's really beneficial to have tons of vultures around because then they gobble up all this stuff and it doesn't spread to us hopefully maybe just other birds so cenarius vultures and bald eagles have a most recent common ancestor of around 18 million years ago. So even though they're closely related, they're, they've had quite a bit of time to evolve separate traits. And so the authors compared their genomes to see what special adaptations the vulture has, because that's something you can do with living animals, yeah. like dinosaurs. They found that in Cenarius vultures, a gene-regulating stomach acid had been selected for, and this probably led to the vulture's unusually acidic stomachs. Mm. Although it was also a little bit more acidic in bald eagles too, I believe. More interestingly, at least to me, is they also found nine genes that were different in vultures which relate to the immune system. <laughs> so they have a strong immune system and strong stomach acid. Yeah. 
So specifically with the immune system, one of the genes is involved with endocytosis, it's called. And basically that's the method of cells enveloping other cells or particulate, for example, harmful microorganisms to just sort of remove them or, you know, like bacteriophages sort of thing. They also have another gene which can accelerate cell death, which doesn't sound great or like something an immune system would want, but basically viruses try to inhibit this function and the evolutionary modifications increasing that cell death might help them fight viral infections that make it past the stomach acid. Oh, so like a last line of defense. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I guess that's the immune system in general. Like mm -hmm. the stomach acid should get it. Then hopefully after that, it doesn't make it into your bloodstream. And then it goes through liver and stuff like that. And then if it makes it all the way into the bloodstream, your only hope is the immune system. Mm -hmm. They also, in this study, looked at a turkey vulture, which is a new world vulture, and it evolves separately from the Cinereus vulture, which is an old world vulture. <laughs> okay. So the new world vulture basically had similar adaptations. So they're saying it's likely that those adaptations, the stronger stomach acid and the increased immune system abilities allows for their scavenging lifestyle, mm -hmm. or at least is useful in their lifestyle. So basically, like you said, they have a stomach acid barrier. And if the pathogens make it past that, their better immune system helps to protect them from the pathogens and helps them from spreading the pathogens all over the place because they sort of destroy them with their, within their own bodies. Mm -hmm. So thanks, dinosaurs, <laughs> protecting us from all these things. Thanks from afar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to get too close to vultures, that's for sure. One interesting thing, though, originally what I was going to look up and make my fun fact about was how old of meat is <laughs> capable of being scavenged. Like, what is the meat that animals won't go after anymore? Mm -hmm. But it varies a lot depending on the animals. So vultures are the most relevant ones because they're dinosaurs, right? With vultures, they're actually pretty picky. Some places say that they like to eat freshly dead things <laughs> and stuff like that. It's really interesting. So apparently vultures often wait a couple days for the food to decay a little bit so that it's easier to get inside and things like that. Mm -hmm. But they usually won't eat meat after about the fourth day. Oh, there's too much bacteria. Maybe. I'm not sure what it is that's building up there, but like weak old food, apparently vultures aren't interested in. They want stuff that's freshly dead. Half a week at most. Yeah. But that made me think in that article where it was talking about, oh, there's so many big dead sauropods. Mm -hmm. These allosaurs would have had tons of food to eat, you know, because it could last months or maybe even up to six years. Right, but if it wasn't going after maybe one month old or even one week old. Yeah, exactly. So then it's like, well, then the size of the animal doesn't really matter. You'd be better off having lots of small animals dying mm -hmm. and getting fresher food to eat than a few huge things that are getting super disgusting. I after wonder weeks if that would change if you're in cold weather and it's winter and the coldness preserves the meat better. Yeah, for sure. Except Allosaurus wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And the sauropods weren't, like we were saying, they're mostly in warm environments. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Yeah. If you find like a whale, like you were saying in, I think last week, how a beached whale in the Arctic can feed animals for like months. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's definitely a, a nice natural preservation there. So one last bonus fun fact, since you even mentioned this, you know, wanting to appreciate vultures from afar, mm -hmm. you should not harass turkey vultures. I won't. In general, you know, you don't want to harass wildlife because it's just mean. But turkey vultures in particular, if you get close to them, especially if they're at a nest or, nest or something, they'll start hissing at you. Hmm. But if that doesn't work, according to Naturally North Idaho, 
They say vultures, quote, can projectile vomit partially digested rotten meat up to 10 feet away. And other other places cited this as their primary defense mechanism. Well, it's a terrible defense mechanism. Well, I I guess it's effective. I think it works Terribly effective. Yeah. There were some sources, too, saying that, like, Vultures don't have to worry as much about nest predation as other animals do because they smell like rotting meat and things. <laughs> so other animals are like, I'm not going near that. Did we see a turkey vulture recently? We did. And I was walking kind of close to it. And then I got maybe 40 feet away and I didn't want to upset it or anything. Mm-hmm. So I stopped and walked away. And now I'm very glad I did. Yeah, I might have projectile vomited on you. Especially considering it was sitting up high. It was like on a roof. Yeah. So it probably could have gotten some more distance. And that would have been awful. That was a good call. Stay away. I think they mostly do that if they're on their nest and they really want you to go away. I think in general, they probably just fly away because they don't want to give up their food. This one was not near anything that looked like a nest. No. But yeah, it's not something you want to get near for sure. And apparently when they do this, it smells incredibly awful, as you'd expect, Mm because it's you know, vomit, and it's also rotten meat vomit. Mm -hmm. But it's also highly acidic, so it can irritate your skin. And if it gets in your eyes, it can also burn really bad. And remember, they have unusually acidic (laughs) stomach acid, too. So it's like, it's not just that it's gross. It's also like... Really bad for you. Yeah, it could be dangerous. So yeah, stay away from turkey vultures, or really just vultures or wildlife in general. That's the the fun tip at the end of the fun fact. Well, you can still go birding, look for them from afar. Yes, from afar. That's why birders have like very high magnification lenses. Mm-hmm. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dido. Thanks for listening. If you want to join our growing community, then sign up at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.